Chapter Eleven of Just As I Am. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Just As I Am by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Eleven A Friendly Dinner. We must have someone to meet them, repeated Mrs. Aspinall. Morton Blake must come, of course, as he is engaged to Miss Courtenay. Write him a little note, Porker, like a good soul, and say that he is to be here at a quarter to eight to meet his sweetheart, while I write to Lady Frances Grange. You'd better ring the bell first, or run down to the hall, that would be quicker, and tell John to order the groom to get ready to carry some letters immediately. Miss Porker ran to execute this errand. She was always running up and down stairs to save the servants time or trouble, and was as lean and active as a middle-aged Mercury. "'Dearest Fan,' wrote Mrs. Aspinall, who had long ago assumed an affectionate authority over Lord Blatchmardin's motherless daughter, as if she had been a godmother, or as if the girl had been committed to her care by a dying mother. "'I want you and your brother to come and make yourselves eminently agreeable this evening. Sir Everett Courtney and his daughter, and I hope his daughter's lover, are to dine here en famille. Oh, come, dear, and look your brightest and prettiest, and sing your delicious French ballads, and be the life of the evening. I know there is a meet on to-day, and I dare say you and Lord Beville will be over half the county between this and dusk, but I will take no excuse for your non-appearance here at a quarter to eight. The groom went off with the letters on one of Mrs. Aspinall's grey cobs, and the lady and her companion began their preparations for the evening. Mrs. Aspinall was an early bird, and had dispatched her invitations before nine o'clock, knowing that Lady Frances and her brother would leave Blatchmardon before ten. "'Now, Porker, my dear, you must exercise all your taste and make my rooms lovely.' said the lady. The dinner-table must be artistic and novel. Let there be a lowish mass of scarlet geraniums and white chrysanthemums in the middle, and a feathery fringe of ferns for a border. Then we will use the old Charles the Second engraved glass, which Mr. Aspinall's mother left me. A poor dear soul, it wasn't much, but it was kindly meant. The old Leeds dessert set will do. It has a homely look, yet is exquisitely artistic. Run down and set about your preparations, my dear, and send me up Jollfish. Jollfish was cook and housekeeper, so-called for dignity, since Mrs. Aspinall was far too keen a manager to let her housekeeping be done by any one but herself. Jollfish was obese and slow, but a good cook, and passing honest. She had never wronged her mistress by so much as a basin of dripping, and it was well for Jollfish that she had not. "'Now, my dear Jollfish,' said Mrs. Aspinall ever so sweetly, for the cook had her little tempers, and did not like dinner-parties that came upon her unawares, or unbeknownst, as she called it, "'I want you to send me up the prettiest little dinner you ever served in your life.' "'When might it be, Mum? Next week?' "'No, Jollfish, this evening.' Oh, "'Lor, Mum, what can I do for this evening? "'You ain't got no company this evening, have you, Mum? 
I've got my dinner all laid out in my mind. A filleted sole, and a dish of cutlets with champignons, and one of them grouse Lord Blatchmardin sent you. Oh, that would have done charmingly, Jollfish, if I had been alone. But I want a nice little dinner for six. And then Mrs. Aspinall, who was a genius at the composition of a bill of fare, lightly sketched the ground plan of a little dinner which would have satisfied the ideas of a clubhouse chef or a professional diner out. Jollfish was as objective as she dared be, prophesied that there wouldn't be such a thing as turbot to be heard of at Highclere, that the price of fowls would be ruinous, or that the birds would be old and tough, that it was a fortnight too early for a turkey pout, and ridiculous to expect oysters. Her mistress overruled every objection, and dismissed Jollfish with a smile. "'I shall want a deal of wine for all them gravies and the soup,' said Mrs. Jollfish, lingering on the threshold. "'Browse shall give you a bottle of sherry and a tumbler of port, and be sure your clear soup tastes of something more than wine and water.' The cook hoped she had made clear soup before in her life, but as she expressed that aspiration in a murmur, Mrs. Aspinall affected not to hear it. Browse appeared an hour later, bearing two notes on a parcel-gilt salver. One from Morton Blake, delighted, etc., the other from Lady Frances. "'Oh, yes, you most indefatigable woman, we'll come, since you make a point of it. But don't be angry if we both begin to look sleepy before the evening is half over, for we expect a big day with the South Dalesha's. Yours always, F.G. Mrs. Aspinall spent her morning cosily by the fire in her salmon-coloured sitting-room, writing letters, regulating her accounts, and reading the last fashionable autobiography. She was a woman who diligently improved her mind with new books. She read memoirs, travels, reviews, political essays on occasion, and even a little science. Her opinions and ideas were as new and fashionable as her gowns and bonnets, and she passed for a woman of some culture. But if you had asked her about de Quincey or Lamb, La Bruyere, Pascal Montaigne, she would have rewarded you with a blank stare. She thought Byron an ephemeral versifier who had achieved a brief notoriety by the audacity of his opinions and the looseness of his morals. Miss Porker appeared at luncheon, after a morning's elegant drudgery. She had decorated drawing-room, ante-room and dinner-table with every available flower, and had vanquished the surly old head-gardener in more than one battle. She had washed the Charles the Second glass and the Leeds dessert dishes, both too sacred to be trusted to meaner hands. She had given out table linen and preserved fruits and Parisian sweetmeats. She had brought forth cruel work cushions and antimacassars, which were too fresh and elegant for daily wear. And now she sat down to the luncheon, which was always her dinner, looking wan and tired, and inwardly wishing she were in the humblest lodging of her own, rather than amidst the splendours of Aspinall Towers. "'I should ask you to dine with us this evening, my dear.' said Mrs. Aspinall amiably, only we shall be six, and that is such a nice number for the oval table in the dining-room. If the table were only round, the odd number would make no difference. 
dear mrs aspinall it doesn't matter louisa answered with a feeble smile although she would have liked to dine with lady frances grange for that young lady had been cordial and pleasant to her on the rare occasions when they had met but she was too familiar with what she called mrs aspinall's ways not to know that this talk about the table was only an excuse if there had been five she would not have been asked to be the sixth if there had been nine she would not have been wanted to be the tenth her only chance of a place at the banquet was when a party of fifteen or sixteen had unluckily dwindled to thirteen and then mrs aspinall insisted on having porker lest any superstitious guest should feel uncomfortable oh, you must come and take your tea with us of course said her patroness i shall be very pleased lady frances is so pretty pretty an olive-skinned thing and thin as a whipping-post dulcibella courtenay is pretty if you like that is real beauty lady frances has such a distinguished air naturally blue blood will show itself somehow answered mrs aspinall in a tone which implied that her blood was of the deepest indigo she spent the afternoon in making a round of visits royalty of her kind required to be maintained by frequent progresses among her people she never suffered herself to be forgotten she was indefatigable in making calls and she had a bi-monthly afternoon the first and third saturday in the month to which she insisted upon people coming there were only tea and cakes and gossip and occasionally a little feeble music but mrs aspinall's pale amber settees were generally crowded at half-past seven mrs aspinall was in her drawing-room looking her handsomest she was a fine-looking woman of what is generally considered the aristocratic type nose arched and knobby nostrils large eyes a cold grey eyebrows a work of art hair the titian red fluffy in texture covering her high narrow forehead with stray locks and tendrils which effectually veiled the wrinkles of seven-and-forty teeth good and real lips thin and a trifle acid in expression but of a vivid rose which would have been exceptional in a girl of seventeen and was startling in a waning beauty to-night mrs aspinall wore a myrtle green velvet gown with no adornment save drooping ruffles of old mechelin lace and an antique venetian chatelaine of dull gold she walked slowly up and down the long drawing-room musing upon her expected guests or rather upon one of them for it was of one only whom she thought why should he not marry she asked herself his daughter will be married before long and then he will find that house of his horribly dull he will either marry or go off to the continent and wander half over europe as he did after his wife's death it would be far more sensible to marry if he made a wise choice and i think he is too clever a man to choose some frivolous girl who would think she did him a favour by accepting him and would compensate herself by making his life miserable the drawing-room at aspinall manor was spacious and lofty but it had none of that cheery homeliness which made the tangley manor drawing-room so pleasant it was a pallid cold-looking apartment 
the walls white and gold with large oval mirrors at intervals and old crystal girandoles the draperies and chair and sofa coverings were of amber satin which time had robbed of its original brightness and warmth of tone the aubusson carpet was of faded drab and blue and cream and gold all blending into one pale subdued tint the long straight windows with their long straight curtains accentuated the loftiness of the room there were broad amber settees against the walls spindle-legged chairs of the genuine louis xvi period in gold and amber two or three spindle-legged tables round and oval decorated with masks goats heads and festoons a pair of buhl jardinieres filled with ferns and flowers and all the rest of the room was empty space it was a room especially adapted for stately receptions and large assemblies and it was well for mrs aspinall that she had a snug and cosy retreat from all this barren grandeur in the small ante-room through which her saloon was approached here within walls whose tawny leather covering gave a look of warmth there were low modern chairs of the puff species gypsy tables books newspapers and all the comforts of everyday life sir everard courtenay miss courtenay and mr blake announced browse the butler mrs aspinall received sir everard and his daughter with enthusiasm it was so good so kind so nice of dulcie and her father to come in this truly friendly way to morton she gave two fingers and a smiling nod he was nothing to her she had no daughters to marry and a rich young parvenu more or less in the world could make no difference to her but she had her views about sir everard had cherished those views for a long time and had striven in vain for the opportunity of carrying them to a successful issue now that dulcie was going to be married it seemed to her that the opportunity had come she was glad when after a little trivial talk about the weather dulcie and morton strayed through the curtained archway into the ante-room with that curious knack of getting away from other people peculiar to engaged lovers mrs aspinall and sir everard were in front of the fireplace she standing in her favourite attitude with her foot on the low brass fender and the edge of her velvet gown drawn up a little to show the rich lace upon her petticoat she had a long narrow foot and a high instep unmistakable mark of that blue blood on which she prided herself when is it to be sir everard she asked looking down at her green satin slipper when is what to be dulcie's marriage sir everard gave a little start as if it were a most unexpected question her marriage oh not for a long time i hope she and morton are engaged but there's been no talk of fixing the time for their wedding she is so young twenty said mrs aspinall with an insinuating air i was married at seventeen she emphasised this with a sigh as if that early marriage had not been altogether happy as if there were still an empty chamber in her heart waiting for an eligible tenant a great deal too soon said sir everard with a provokingly matter-of-fact tone it was my father's doing i had no voice in the matter i hope dulcie will be in no hurry 
said Sir Everard, not showing the faintest retrospective interest in Mrs. Aspinall's marriage. I shall be wretched without her. Oh, you will miss her very much, no doubt, but it is a loss you must have anticipated. And altogether charming as she is, at her age Dulcie can be no companion for you. Not a companion for me, cried Sir Everard. She is my second self, my source of perpetual delight. She understands my every thought and feeling. She appreciates my favourite books as thoroughly as the subtlest of professional critics could do. She cheers me when I'm dull, she soothes me when I'm weary. Where should I find such another companion? No, Mrs. Aspinall, I am too old to make new friendships. When Dulcie leaves me, my life will be desolate. Mrs. Aspinall's thin lips tightened a little, and her calculating grey eyes assumed a troubled look, but only for a few moments, and then she was able to smile her sweetest smile at the affectionate father. "'Nothing in nature can be more beautiful than such an attachment,' she said. "'But for your own sake, Sir Everard, I trust that new friendships, new ties—' "'There can be none. New ties. Impossible. I have but a remnant of life to live, and that must be spent with no better companions than my books.' "'A remnant of life? You are so young!' Fifty next January, Mrs. Aspinall, and I feel as if I had lived a century. But I did not come here to be gloomy. Dulcie and I will not be entirely parted, even when she is Mrs. Blake. I shall see her often, and in years to come her children will console me for the loss of their mother. I must submit to the common fate. Lord Beville, Lady Frances Grange, announced Browse. Their entrance made an agreeable diversion. Lady Frances, called by her intimates Lady Fanny and even Fan, was one of the liveliest young women in the county, a magnificent horsewoman, a charming singer, and with about as much education outside those two accomplishments as the average ballet girl. She, like Dulcie, was motherless, and had been allowed to have her own way ever since she could remember and had governed her good old governess, and reigned supreme in a slipshod household. But she had not made such good use of her liberty as Dulcie had done. She was not given to books, save of the lightest and most amusing order. She had just learnt enough English to write a decent letter, and enough French to sing a ballad in that language, and to understand and pronounce those phrases which crop up in British conversation. Beyond this, her governess had been a failure. But despite these shortcomings, Frances Grange was so winning and so sweet that no one would have wished her other than she was. She was just pretty enough to be intensely fascinating. She had small, delicately cut features, a brunette complexion, dark brown hair, worn short and curly like a boy's, so that there were no plaits or tails to tumble over her shoulders or be blown across her eyes in a hunting field. She had a slim and graceful figure, and though tall among women, was a featherweight on a powerful hunter. She dressed simply and well, without extravagance, talked as much slang as an Oxford undergraduate, and set the strict middle-aged section of society at defiance. 
her chief friend was her brother who resembled her mentally and morally but not physically since he was a tawny whiskered young athlete of the true saxon type broad-nosed blue-eyed and ruddy-cheeked he adored fanny and fanny believed in him and they were altogether a model brother and sister the evening was as pleasant as mrs aspinall could have desired yet things did not take the exact turn she had intended lady frances contrived to absorb a good deal of sir everard's attention with her lively sallies and rattling description of the day's sport dulcie and morton were happy in their quiet way sitting together in corners but were intruded upon more than they cared about by lord beville who insisted upon talking to dulcie and was inclined to ignore mr blake's peculiar privileges as an accepted suitor mrs aspinall felt when all was over that her evening had been a success but she made up her mind never again to invite lady frances to meet sir everard courtenay End of chapter 11